0: Welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts, and this week we have an edition of the Scottish Environmental Podcast and Clyde with Ian Bruce the presenter. Cop 28 is just getting underway over in Dubai and Ian has got together a panel of guests to talk about what we might expect from this latest cop and maybe also
1: what we can't expect from it. Here he is. Hello and welcome to Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. I'm in Bruce in Glasgow. COP, the United Nations annual meeting to discuss how to confront the climate crisis, is upon us yet again. This time COP28 is happening in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. That is, I think, the world's seventh biggest exporter of oil. Uh, And the president of the COP28 is none other than the president of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, Not surprisingly that's raised some eyebrows and what's more this of course comes at the end of what is looks like being or is already the hottest year ever recorded globally and it comes on the back of a a series of reports the latest the uh, emissions gap report from the united nations environmental program which points out that pretty well every single world government is way off meeting their own uh, commitments, their own promises in terms of mitigation uh, uh, and cutting emissions. And even th- if they were to fulfill those promises, which they're way off fulfilling, the world would be heating up by well beyond the 1.5 degree uh, global warming uh, amount, which has been seen as the critical threshold. So what should we expect of COP28? and does it make any difference anyway? Uh, to discuss all this, we're joined, uh, we're very happy to have with us Becky Kenton-Lake, she's the coalition manager for Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, that's the main coalition of climate organizations and campaigns and groups here in Scotland. And joining us from Colombia, Nathan Thankey is uh, a veteran of many COPs. Uh, he was the essential in organizing the uh, COP26 coalition when COP26 was here in Glasgow a couple of years ago, and he's now working in Colombia with the uh, the fossil fuel non proliferation sorry the fossil fuel non proliferation treaty initiative. Thank you so much to both of you for being with us, um, Becky. First Minister Scottish First Minister Hamza Yousaf and his team are heading to Abu Dhabi. The climate movement here in Glasgow is gearing up for the Global Day of Action on the 9th of December. Tell us a little bit about how Scotland's looking at COP28, what the movement, uh, what what are the movement's demands and messages ahead of that Global Day of Action on December the 9th?
0: Thanks Ian, yeah it's amazing that it's already been two years since the COP26 in Glasgow. I feel like there is still some connection you know to the to the process every year when it comes around now in Scotland There's definitely still more media interest here, more kind of interest from the climate movement and the community here than there would have been, I think, without us hosting a couple of years ago. So in terms of kind of this year's COP, it feels like there's kind of two really important aspects that people in Scotland are kind of organising around. And the first is obviously the kind of international solidarity aspect. As you've already said, Ian, it's been it's likely to be confirmed that this will be the hottest year ever for the world. We're seeing, you know, increasingly devastating impacts in every corner of the planet. And again, the COP has been hosted in a country where no protests or mobilizations are actually allowed to take place. So it feels like it's more important than ever, as we did in Egypt for Egypt last year as well, that we come out in Scotland to show international solidarity with the most impacted communities around the world and show that we stand in solidarity with people that are experiencing the most impacts and also aren't able to, to come out on the streets and have their voice the second aspect I think that's really relevant to people in Scotland is that we've seen the last few months you know rolling back on climate policies by the UK government we've seen a lack of action over the last few years by the Scottish government although they're still kind of saying all the right things and they still have seem to be having kind of positive intentions we're just seeing that lack of action and lack of delivery that we need so urgently in this kind of crucial decade for action so it really feels like there's a lot of concern around um, you know policy has been rolled back and, and the lack of action and in Scotland there is a new climate change plan that was due to be published in November which is a really crucial document that was due to be setting out exactly how Scotland would get on track to meet its legal climate targets across all different sectors but that has now been delayed until the new year and it might not even appear until kind of spring 2024. So I think there's a lot of concern around people and it feels like the 9th of December is a really key moment to come together We've got national and grassroots organisations all organising together and we'll be coming together on the day. So really looking forward to that being a kind of key moment to bring everyone together and hear from some inspiring speakers and, and really show that people in Scotland wanting urgent action.
1: Uh, Becky, you mentioned that uh, the, the Scottish Government's uh, climate plan, new new climate plan. The fact that it's been delayed, is that a concern? I mean, is, is that a, a a worrying sign or or is it just a kind of the way things are
0: it is worrying yeah when we were in an emergency situation we know that the Scottish Government themselves have said that this is a decade for delivery the the 2020s but we're already nearly halfway through that decade and we're just not seeing the the amount of action that we need to reduce emissions in a fair way and, and deliver a just transition so although the Scottish Government will probably still be able to deliver the plan within their statutory kind of timeline it just doesn't show the sort of urgency and the commitment to delivery that we, we so urgently need to see. So it is, it is worrying, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think we might come back to some of those, uh, those points about exactly what's going on with the Scottish government poli- uh, policy in a moment. But um, Nathan, we mentioned this question of the emissions gap uh, and these recent reports uh, that show just how far we are off even the, the relatively modest targets that have been set by previous COPs. Can you unpick that a bit for us? Exactly how far off are we and what does it mean?
2: Yeah, I would say that even more uh, interesting than the emissions gap um, and even more important to look at is probably the production gap uh, report. So that's uh, an an effort that has been led by uh, the UN Environment Programme over the last number of years, showing the um, really the massive discrepancy between what countries are going to produce in terms of fossil fuels over the next decades uh, and what their nationally determined contributions or what their pledges to climate action are. And you know, they are completely incompatible. Uh, the, the majority of uh, increase in production is planned for North America. I think it's 30% of planned. Um, increase between now and 2030. So the remainder of the decade is essentially two countries, Canada and the US. Um, And this absolutely makes a mockery of, um, you know, the, the multilateral process that the COP is a part of. It's taken 30 years for climate negotiations to even name the biggest cause of climate change, which is fossil fuels. We have a massive challenge to get a global consensus around any kind of useful language about phasing out fossil fuels while at the COP. We know that there are different national contexts and needs. Not every country is in the same situation. But we cannot successfully tackle climate change just by setting uh, emissions goals that are ambitious on paper, but while at the same time we're actually um, digging up and burning uh, new fossil fuels. and and licensing new oil, gas, and coal projects. We need a a different approach. Momentum is growing for a slightly different approach. That's the initiative that I'm a part of. Um, So there's a lot of excitement now around a new mechanism to complement the Paris Agreement um, and build intergovernmental cooperation uh, around a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty because we need a plan, an actual global plan to manage... Uh, a decline and eventual phase out of fossil fuels in a way that is as fast as possible. It has to be fair as well, or it's not gonna get off the ground. Um, And part of the fairness is of course, that it has to be uh, financed. We're we're pretty clear in our analysis that the UNFCCC might be useful for uh, a number of reasons. There's a lot of um, fights to be had in that forum. We might touch on some of them later. But as a forum for managing the equitable phase out of the fossil fuels, it, it doesn't seem uh, fit for purpose. Uh, we would love to be proved wrong on that. But at, at present, uh, it looks like we need to, to complement it with um, additional measures. We also have this issue of many lobbyists being sent and the, and the corporate capture uh, of the COP space. There's a report released uh, yesterday or the day before showing that over 7,000 um, fossil fuel lobbyists have attended uh, in the last 20 years. Um, so they are you know, trying to exert uh, influence, really a kind of a pathetic um, last gasp of a dying industry um, to just extract as much profit as possible, the world be damned. So yeah, we feel like there's a number of uh, challenges with engaging the COP um, that would call into question, you know, whether or not it can deliver. Um, I can get into those, but I I feel they're probably pretty familiar for most people. We have a consensus model. So the biggest polluters are inevitably at the table determining what to do. It's the classic case of the fox, um, you know, being in charge of the the chicken coop. Um, And then we have a kind of structural um, inability within the, the design of the UNFCCC to focus on emissions as an abstract thing rather than to actually focus on the extraction, so the production of fossil fuels, um, which leaves room for all manner of loopholes. This is why we're getting all of the uh, increased obsession around f- fantastical ideas of, of the scale of carbon capture and storage, even of geoengineering. So what we're seeing is a decoupling basically of fossil fuels from the emissions that fossil fuels and burning them causes there's many other reasons why we need to phase out from fossil fuels, um, health um, uh, ch- challenges, um, questions around democracy, damage uh, to local community and ecosystems. So it's not only an emissions issue, uh, but even from an emissions issue, we can't decouple emissions from fossil fuel production.
1: I want to ask a bit more in just a moment, Nathan, about what what you think those points and it still is worth fighting for within the the COP space. I mean, I, both of you I know will remember very well, you know, that back in back two years ago in Glasgow, I think it was a broad... I mean, there were many differences, but there was broadly a consensus about that sort of inside-outside kind of strategy. You know, the idea that we needed to mobilise as much as possible outside, but we also needed to kind of have those battles inside and bring those two things together to put as much pressure on. the The, the increasing inability or unwillingness of governments to kind of fulfil their promises seems to kind of reduce the usefulness of that inside thing so i i I do want to explore that a bit more but how does that look from scotland becky i mean how does the scottish government's performance on these things uh on or non-performance on these things compare do you think
0: yeah i think to pick up on something that nathan just said it's it's obviously completely pointless to have strong commitments and make these promises if you're still you know agreeing to extract new fossil fuels and keep producing and keep emitting so I mean Scotland we have had some of the world's most ambitious targets but other countries are catching up with those and they're no longer as impressive as they once were because they're not kind of being ratcheted up either they're kind of stuck at the same levels we have made some progress in reducing emissions by over 50 percent since 1990 but again we've kind of done the easy things that the big wins and these are kind of the emissions progress we've made has stalled in recent years We've missed eight of the last 12 emissions targets and the government's own advisors have said we're not on track to meet our legally binding target for 2030. So it is concerning, you know, we have been shown some leadership, but we really need to ramp up what we're doing to kind of to kind of remain in that position. And the, the I mean, climate change Can pilot, I, just jump, I mentioned just earlier. In the... Yeah, sure. Na-
1: Na- Nathan mentioned the, the presence of the fossil fuel industry lobbyists in the process. Is that something we're feeling the effect of in Scotland and in relation to the Scottish government, do you think, that sort of relationship with the with the industry and the, their lobbying?
0: I think so, yeah. I think it was Friends of the Earth Scotland released um, a report um, not so long ago about the pres- presence of um, fossil fuel lobbyists in the Scottish government and the meetings that they're having with the First Minister and other f- officials. So I think it is something that we're really concerned about, you know, that level of access they have to the government and the level of influence they have. So we're seeing potentially the Scottish government are going to be approving a new gas fired power station at Peterhead. You know, they haven't come out very strongly against the proposed Rosebank oil field just off Shetland. So it is really concerning um, that they're not kind of taking a stronger stance on, on this issue.
1: Nathan, at the centre of COP28 was meant to be this global stock take, you know, um, and I, I imagine that will be mentioned quite a bit in the news coverage of, of COP28. Can you tell us what is the global stock take? And does it achieve anything or could it achieve anything?
2: I can tell you what it's supposed to be, which may be somewhat different than what it ends up being. Um, but essentially, in the in the Paris Agreement, Uh, countries realized that their um, pledges towards the Paris Agreement, because they had made those in advance of it in in 2014, were insufficient, essentially. Um, And so they were more focused on getting the the, the basic structure of the Paris Agreement than on the content, um, which in any case is nationally determined, meaning uh, it's not set according to science, It's not set according to a global plan to be equitably shared. It's just every country do what you want. So it was kind of inevitable that it would end up being that way. Um, But they tried to get around the problem by creating this global stock take for 2023, uh, which would be the quote unquote, ratchet up mechanism. So an opportunity for countries to um, come together and assess or take stock of um, The progress or lack of progress towards the goals of the Paris Agreement um, and give some guidance on the next round of NDCs uh, um, as to, you know, to to basically improve them. Um, So many, many civil society groups have pinned a lot of hope on the global stock tick as a sort of uh, redemption for the the process. Um, I I fear they will be disappointed. Um, You know, they have... and the stock take is of course assessing progress towards all of the goals so that that would be all of the areas of the Paris agreement not only mitigation but also with regards to finance with regards to adaptation and with regards to loss and damage uh, and other areas it's it's a holistic um, assessment but i just want to mention a little bit about what we're hoping that the stock take can do with regards to fossil fuels uh, as one of the key fights you know we really think that they should um, decide to cease new oil gas and coal exploration and development um, in an equitable way so with the most wealthy and industrialized countries moving first and fastest um, and, and doing so uh, in a way that actually uh, is in line with the the science and with what the ipcc says we need to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by um, and coupled with that there's a big push for um, a complementary uh, renewable energy target. Um, there's a number of different targets floating around at the minute. Um, and as always, the devil will be in the detail. you know, is this a target that is is linked to um, fossil fuels, meaning that it would result in the, the displacement of fossil fuel, um, or is it just a target that would increase? Um, you know, overall capacity, which is probably not what we need. Uh, You know, we need to address the problem at source. Um, And there's many issues also with mineral uh, extraction related to renewable energy um, and and land rights as well that need to be factored in uh, to that. So, you know, there are uh, issues there. But I think one of the key fights really with the global stock take isn't actually about the uh, any one area, any one thematic area, whether that's fossil fuels or finance, they're they're all key and they're all contentious. Um, but actually, uh, I would suggest that one of the main challenges is that the this question of how do we actually um, understand our arrival to this point in time? You know, it's 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 a both a um, retrospective uh, exercise as well as a forward-looking one. Um, but in the retrospective part of it, we have a real challenge because we know that the history of climate change doesn't start in 1990 when the UNFCCC um, is agreed. Uh, it starts much earlier with you know industrial capitalism um, and, and sort of uh, even the colonial era uh, being really responsible for a massive uh, spike in emissions that then just has continued um since uh since that time so there's a big fight about how to take stock and how to include historical responsibility um, within the frame of the global stock take and our usual suspect the united states of america as the greatest historical polluter uh is adamant that that should not be mentioned at all unfortunately the united states was the um the co-facilitator of of basically the process that will feed into this political outcome um, of the global stock take in Dubai. So they kind of rigged the, um, the input somewhat uh, by really uh, reducing um, the significance of any mention of historical responsibility, even though all of the input from parties had uh, given this a you know, immense priority. We're not gonna understand anything about our current position if we don't understand where we've come from. And we're also not gonna be able to give any guidance on what we should do in the future uh, that will be acceptable to parties if that also doesn't take into consideration the fact that some countries have polluted a hell of a lot more than others.
1: Uh, Nathan, so d- let me just get something clear. There, there seems to be a lot of t- talk at the moment in the mainstream press and commentators. And I think this partly came out of a meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping um, about this sort of tripling uh, renewables by... Um, I can't remember what what the target is now, but that idea of tripling the capacity for renewable energy, you don't see as being a kind of particularly useful path. Am I understanding you right?
2: It depends. Um, of course, it, we need to increase renewable energy capacity. The tripling goal is just sort of pulled out of nowhere. Whether that you know not exactly science based, but a politically determined uh, figure. Um, other figures include a one point five terawatt. Um, increase in capacity annually. The 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 thing with this is really, as I said at the uh, beginning, does this result in a reduction in fossil fuels or is it just adding renewable energy capacity onto existing and expanding fossil fuel um, uh, derived um, uh, supply? So that's, that's the, the problem that we face. If we're just adding renewable energy onto fossil fuels, we're not going to get anywhere and similarly you know this is a, a very difficult uh, topic that no one wants to touch with a, a long pole but we actually have to reduce um essentially demand uh, energy demand um going into the future while at the same time increasing access to energy because there's a billion people on earth that don't have access to electricity or don't have adequate access to electricity so you know we're, we're talking in Global goals about universal kind of numbers, and it, it it actually doesn't work like that. You know, there will be people that need to dramatically increase their consumption of energy, and there will be people far fewer uh, who need to really significantly decrease their consumption. And these are the elites uh, in in all of our countries that really overconsume. Um, and it's not um, you know in order to survive; it's in order to really. Uh, live uh, lives of luxury and so those um, energy that's just you know meant to help uh, celebrities and the, the, the super elites you know have more yachts and um, be really extravagant is is not uh, useful any extra capacity that we have should be going towards uh, those um, in the world which there are many who you know need it for to in order to live dignified lives
1: Becky, what 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 um what role do you think Hamza Youssef and his Scottish government team can, if any, can can usefully play in Dubai at COP twenty eight? And you know what kind of demands is the movement putting on them to do there?
0: Yeah, so Scotland has an important role at COPs because it's not an official party to the talks like the UK government or or other kind of countries. So. We believe that they can play a really helpful role as that non-state actor by kind of championing the cause of the global south and really kind of pushing ahead on and showing kind of leadership on some of the key issues. So we saw this a couple of years ago at COP26 when Nicola Sturgeon really championed the issue of loss and damage and the the Scottish government then became the first nation to pledge funds. Although they themselves would admit it was a drop in the ocean, it was a really important moment for kind of breaking that logjam and kind of encouraging other countries to act. So we'd really like to see them carry on in that role. Um, the COP process really badly needs, you know, rich polluting countries to, to lead on some of these topics, but we just have to always say, you know, that there's no way of showing international credibility or leadership if that action isn't backed up with action at home to reduce emissions. So we can't be talking about how great we are on the international stage if we're not meeting our climate targets at home and reducing emissions. Um, so a couple of things that we'd like to see from the Scottish government at this COP. Um, I mean, just transition is an area that is having increasing profile in the UNFCCC space, and that will be a bigger issue at this year's COP. And we have got a you know a fairly good story to tell on some aspects of just transition in Scotland. You know, we're the first country to, I think, have a just transition commission and a just transition cabinet secretary with that as their remit. So, you know, we have made some progress on this. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that Scotland could be talking about. You know, stretching their ambition on and, and talking about on the global stage to kind of encourage others to, to follow suit. Secondly, um, really wanting Scotland to support um, the campaign that Nathan's working on, on the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. If the Scottish Government give it backing to that, it would be a really positive indication that they are looking to fairly kind of transition away from fossil fuels and supporting that global campaign, I think would be, would be a really powerful step. So that's just a couple of examples of things we're wanting them to, to be talking about at this year's COP.
1: Is that feasible? I mean, is it likely or possible? I mean, either of you actually, Nathan or or Becky, that the Scottish government, I I don't know, uh, would sign up to the the Non-Proliferation Treaty?
2: All things are possible, Ian. Um, Politics is the art of making things even more possible. So I don't see why not. Um, And a strong signal from Scotland, as Becky said, would do wonders, I think, for encouraging others. We have... um, You know, very few countries in the global north and in Europe in particular that are um, uh, openly uh, calling for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. The the countries that are doing so are in the global south. Um, So a signal from a global north country uh, would be excellent, even if that country is not a uh, party to the NFCCC. So, yeah, Scotland would be very welcome to um, make a splash at the COP and you know, follow on from its leadership um, with regards to loss and damage, uh, to um, you know, adjust transition away from fossil fuels.
1: So may- maybe maybe you can make that one of the slogans for the uh, Global Day of Action. Might be a bit late by then, Becky, uh, but it's certainly be, you know it will be an interesting concrete thing to demand. Yeah, um, but tell me, Nate- Nathan, what? Um... Tell me a bit more about what the 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 nonproliferation proliferation treaty initiative is arguing and trying to get out of COP twenty eight in the next couple of weeks. You know.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I, I said at the start, the start that um, we don't hold a lot of hope for the the COP as a as a forum. Like we don't see it as uh, particularly capable of dealing with the issue of an uh, equitable phase out of fossil fuels, but. That's not a you know a, just a position that we have just because. So we are also engaging in it um, and hoping that you know it could deliver, I think that if it delivered um, a recognition on the need to address all fossil fuels, recognition of that production gap uh, report that I already mentioned, um, and if it recognized the need to address the full life cycle of fossil fuels, including production, transportation consumption, um, if it recognized the need to end the expansion, so no new projects, as the first step uh, in a phase-out and as a necessary step in, in keeping to 1.5. If it uh, committed to an equitable phase-out of fossil fuels without all of these loopholes and qualifiers of will it be unabated or um, you know, other false solutions. If there was also a clear link between phase-out and these considerations around equity around the common and differentiated responsibilities that countries have. If the phase-out was supported, like if we can talk about phase-out all day long, but there are many countries that would love to phase-out fossil fuels, would love a just transition, but are very economically dependent um, on fossil fuel uh, income, um, usually because they export it. Um, Those countries need support, financial and technical and technological support Uh, to to enact a just transition. A country like Colombia is a country that is literally crying out for that support, has plans for just transition, but cannot do it alone. So a COP would need to really elevate that cooperation. Um, And then I think, you know,
1: can, can I just jump in there, Nathan, because you, you began to talk earlier about this alternative mechanism, I think, you know, for, you know, outside of the COP. And, I, and I, maybe you could, could you just, because we're almost out of time and I'd really like to get that clear. What is the alternative, you know, all right, so that you can do some stuff in COP, but what's the alternative path that you're looking at and proposing there?
2: We're proposing that countries begin to negotiate a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. So that would be you know, as the name would suggest, taking some inspiration from existing um, multilateral treaties, in this case, the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was also notably kind of um, championed by civil society, by movements, and then taken up by governments in the UN system. Um, so, again, the there's plenty of other examples of, um uh, such treaties the, the plastics treaty that's been currently negotiated is is one but there's also you know the montreal protocol the um the ottawa convention on the the ban of um, landmines so there's a number of um uh, treaties where a, a popular campaign has forced governments um to come to the table and to begin to agree um you know the the, the policy to address the issue in the case of fossil fuels, it's obviously a much harder issue because, kind of, our whole economy is built around fossil fuels, so it's not as simple as um, you know the the CFCs or or, or landmines. You know, we don't have a landmine based economy, although uh, you know we do have a war based economy. So it's it's somewhat similar, um, and we think that this can actually be done far faster than. Uh, the consensus model of the UNFCCC, because that requires all 194 parties um, to be in agreement. We have obviously the countries that want to be the last barrel of oil produced. Um, they're not going to, uh, you know, come to the table. So we actually need a group of countries that are willing, that are going to engage, um, you know, genuinely um, and ambitiously for them to be sort of first movers, and for them to ride ahead and and that has proven to be a model um, of, of treaty uh, creation that has proved successful in the past where you do have a group of countries that want to lead on an issue and then they build a consensus and they build it out in layers rather than trying to build out the the big container right at the start which is what we would have to do in the climate convention.
1: That's, uh, that, that sounds really challenging, but, but, but exciting if it's, if it's possible to move in that direction. Becky, just a, a final comment maybe from you on, you know, what, what, what you see beyond COP as the priorities.
0: Yeah, I think in Scotland there's just a lot of huge opportunities coming up for, to show that the Scottish Government are really going to turn their kind of positive rhetoric on action into actual delivery. So I'd encourage everyone to come along on the 9th of December and join the Global Day of Action in Edinburgh. We're starting at 1230 outside the Scottish Parliament and there's going to be lots of opportunities there to add your voice uh, for action. And after that in the new year, please look out for the new climate change plan and be speaking to your MSP about trying to make sure it's as strong as possible and it actually clearly demonstrates how we will get on track to meeting our climate targets. So that's another really big thing that's coming up next year. So um, yeah, please look out for those.
1: Thank you so much to both of you. We are out of time, but that was really, really interesting. And um, indeed, i echoing Becky's call for all of you in Scotland. Please make it to Edinburgh on the 9th of December. And Nathan, thank you very much. Are you going to be in Abu Dhabi, Nathan?
2: Yeah, I'll be, I'll be at the COP. Um, and You can follow the Treaty Initiative on all kinds of social media and also check out our website. Ian, if you permit me one minute to just say something else, which I think sure. is
1: go ahead, ahead
2: but I haven't mentioned because it's not it's not strictly related to fossil fuels um or indeed to the cop agenda but this cop will obviously be taking place in a context in which there's an ongoing um genocide in 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 gaza um an assault on on Palestine so that will definitely color the talks even if it's not being discussed um in the negotiations um and I think that that is also going to really be a key issue for civil society and social movements who are going to repeatedly and clearly issue the call for a ceasefire for a true ceasefire not a humanitarian pause or you know a a breather before the bombing uh, uh, re-commences but an actual ceasefire and for justice for palestine so that's going to be very live i would watch out for that
1: no absolutely thanks a very very necessary to make that to remind us of that and I think I think there is going to be some overlap on the 9th of December in Edinburgh too between the the you know the Global Day of Action and uh, actions around Palestine that's already been mentioned I think in some of the prepar- preparatory meetings. But um, thank you so much to both of you. I'm sorry we don't have any more time but um, uh, that's all we have time for for this episode of Rising Clyde. I'm in Bruce in Glasgow until next time.